This episode is brought to you by the Living by the Indwelling Life of Christ Discipleship Course. This course is all audio, and it comes with a digital workbook, plus two bonus books that you can only get by signing up for the course. The course gives you a practical look at how to apply Paul's words in Galatians 2.20. It is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Yes, but how? How do we practically live by divine life, the life of Christ that indwells us? This is what the course explores. Over 2,000 people from all over the world have taken it. You have it for life, and you take it at your own pace. If you're interested, go to thedeeperjourney.com. That's thedeeperjourney.com. You can check out free samples there also. Hi, Fun Seekers. Welcome to another edition of the Christ is All podcast. Today we're going to do something a little bit different, but it is within the tradition of this podcast, and that is I'm going to share some chapters with you from one of my books. And the book we're going to feature today is Regrace, What the Shocking Beliefs of the Great Christians Can Teach Us Today. And you're going to hear the first five chapters of this book. And if you enjoy it, you can get a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any other bookstore. Now, if you want to read some sample chapters and listen to an interview that I did on the book, you can go to regrace.org, regrace.org. Christian Audio presents Regrace. What the Shocking Beliefs of the Great Christians Can Teach Us Today by Frank Viola Narrated by Sean Runette 1. Why this book? The devil is a better theologian than any of us, and is a devil still. A.W. Tozer In November 2014, Rick Warren asked me to write a series of blog posts on the shocking beliefs of the great Christians who shaped the Church, especially the evangelical wing. Warren's hope was that the series would soften the uncivil climate in the Christian community over doctrinal differences. If, for example, a Christian discovered that his or her theological hero had some peculiar, inaccurate, or even shocking beliefs, this would give him or her pause before unloading both barrels on a fellow believer over an alleged doctrinal trespass. After watching the non-stop carnage on social media over theological disagreements during the last decade— I fully resonated with Warren's goal, and so I began writing the Shocking Beliefs series on my blog. Within a year, the series went viral, receiving hundreds of thousands of page views from all over the world. In 2017, I had a conversation with the Baker Publishing team about revising and expanding the series into a book. They agreed, and that's how this project began. The purpose of this book The book I wrote before the one you're listening to right now is called Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is a fresh presentation of the earth-shaking gospel of the kingdom of God. One of the lessons those of us who have joined the insurgents have learned is to always walk in the love of Christ, even toward people with whom we disagree. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. Regrace has but one objective, to foster grace, civility, and tolerance among Christians when they disagree with one another over theological matters. The subtitle, Shocking, is subjective. 
Some Christians will find a number of the beliefs articulated in this book to be first-class shockers. Others will find them surprising. A small number may shrug their shoulders and muse to themselves, so what? Yet the point made in each chapter is undeniable. No influential Christian of the past could claim flawless perception. Each of them had blind spots. Some of their views were peculiar at best, others were aberrant or ran contrary to Scripture, at least to the minds of many evangelical Christians. But despite their less-than-perfect beliefs, God still used them. This fact alone should cause us to relax whenever we run into a teacher, preacher, author, or fellow Christian on a blog or social media feed who holds views with which we disagree, especially when we come to grips with the immovable fact that none of us is immune to being wrong. That includes you and me. Getting clear. Before we move on, I want to be crystal clear about five things. One, there is no reason to get offended with any of the chapters in this book, unless, of course, you're easily offended. If that's the case, I have no guaranteed antidote for you, but I did address you directly in a previous book with a cure. Two, most Christians have heroes. I know I do, but some people are overly protective of theirs. I was keenly aware of this when I wrote the blog post on the shocking beliefs of John Calvin. After I published it, I sent this email to Rick Warren. Subject, Shocking Beliefs of John Calvin. This one may get me hung. Hi, Rick. The post is below. If I disappear, it's your fault. You can reach me at Salman Rushdie's place. Rick's response made me laugh out loud. He promised to officiate my funeral if my body was ever found. Keep in mind that I'm not a Calvin hater. I never touched his theological system. I simply pointed out some beliefs he held that are shocking to many evangelical Christians, just as I did with the rest of the people I treat in this volume. Nevertheless, in response to that original blog post, I was on the receiving end of hate mail, even from Quakers. The smoldering anger laden in those emails would make Kaiser Sose blush. If you don't know who Mr. Sose is, you can insert Howard Stern into that sentence. What do I mean? Here are two of the tamer ones. Viola's journey to the dark side is now complete. Writing this blog post is the equivalent of witchcraft. I wonder if he's stopped torturing small animals, too. Doubt it. Take me off his blog list immediately. Your shocking beliefs series reminds me of Charles Manson. You're a... expletive, and probably a closet serial killer, too. 3. Some of these so-called shocking beliefs that I cover in this book are beliefs that I myself agree with. Others I find abhorrent. Consequently, just because a shocking belief is listed doesn't reveal how I personally feel about it. It simply means that many evangelical Christians will find the belief to be shocking at worst or peculiar at best. Therefore, to those of you who are inclined to finish this book and proudly throw your chest out saying, Good grief, I wasn't shocked by any of those beliefs, remember three things. You missed the point of the book. Each person I feature had people who believed they were heretics during their day, and every one of them still have people raking them over the coals because of their viewpoints. 4. While I disagree with a number of beliefs that each person I feature held, I have respect for each of them. In fact, I cannot tie the laces of their shoes. Each individual was remarkable in his own right. 
I realize this means that people who don't like Calvin, Lewis, Wesley, Augustine, and so forth will be turned off by that statement, and some may misuse this book as a frontal attack on each person it covers, completely missing the boat on those chapters and the intent of this volume. If you ever find someone doing that, feel free to quote this section to them to jar their memory. 5. To keep this book relatively short, I didn't cover every shocking belief these figures from church history held. I simply covered the beliefs I felt were sufficient to make my point. The source materials will give you further information about each individual and their views, so I'm sure you can uncover more of their shocking beliefs if you desire to investigate. But again, how many peculiar views they held isn't the point. The point is that some of their beliefs were imperfect, and hence we should show more tolerance toward each other whenever we disagree. On Great Christians For the both of you who are apoplectic right now because I used the word great to describe fallen humans, let me point out that I'm merely following Jesus here. The greatest among you will be your servant. Matthew chapter 23 verse 11 Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. So settle down, okay? Note that I'm only covering eight great Christians in this book. In my study of church history, these are the people I believe shaped the evangelical Christian world the most. I don't have a shocking belief entry for Billy Graham, since I don't think he fits into that category. However, I did feature seven surprising, perhaps even shocking, quotes by him. You will find that no women are mentioned. That's because, in my research, the women who significantly shaped church history, such as Fanny Crosby and Amy Carmichael, didn't appear to hold any shocking beliefs. I suppose that's a compliment to them. Finally, I've deliberately omitted the shocking actions of the great Christians, focusing instead on their beliefs. Actions and beliefs aren't the same. It bears repeating. The purpose of this book is not to lower these individuals in your eyes. It's actually the opposite. It's to show you that despite their strange and sometimes flawed thinking on some issues, God still used them, mightily even. The lesson, of course, is that God uses His people in spite of their strange or erroneous perspective. And since that's the case, let's have more grace whenever we disagree with one another. It's time for us to re-grace. 2. Tis Humor All along, let us remember we are not asked to understand, but simply to obey. Amy Carmichael When I began my Shocking Beliefs blog series that eventually became this book, I anticipated that some readers would misuse a post to attack the Christians I was covering. Others wanted to roast me over a slow spit after they realized their spiritual hero didn't possess immaculate perception. For these reasons, I added this caution just before the comment section that followed each blog post. This one appeared under the C.S. Lewis post. Warning! 
Now that you've been made aware of some of the surprising beliefs of C.S. Lewis, you may be tempted to overreact. So before you write your comment, heed this warning. If anyone wields accusations like C.S. Lewis is the mouthpiece of Satan or Lewis is a cross between the Antichrist, the Zodiac Killer, and the Unabomber and other such sentiments, our beloved blog manager won't approve the comment. So those of you who found this post on the web somewhere and are starting to march toward the comments box with pitchforks, blowtorches, and blunt objects in order to delegitimize Catgate and marginalize Lewis beyond repair, your remark will vanish into the electricity after the blog manager hits the delete key. In addition, this isn't the place for a theological smackdown, a doctrinal beatdown, a look-at-how-much-I-know-about-C.S.-Lewis ego session, or a Calvinism versus Arminianism feeding frenzy. We simply ask that you post your favorite C.S. Lewis quote in the comments. Thank you very much. 3. We know in part. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry As I argued in Revise Us Again, every follower of Jesus is a rough draft. Over time, the great editor, the Holy Spirit, shapes our lives and views. But until we see the Lord and we know even as we are known, we are all in process. This is also true for the great Christians who have gone before us. Therefore, one of the mistakes we should guard against is the temptation to dismiss a person's entire contribution because they hold or have held to ideas we find difficult to stomach. Speaking personally, if I demanded that a person's theological views be identical to mine, then if I met myself thirty years ago, I would have had to disfellowship myself. The truth is, my views on some topics have changed over the years. And so have yours. We are all in process. None of us gets everything right all the time. This stands true for every Christian who has ever breathed oxygen. So my purpose in highlighting some of the shocking beliefs of the people upon whose shoulders we stand is not to burn them in effigy, nor is it to dismiss their positive contributions to church history. Rather, it's to demonstrate that, even though they may have held views that would raise the eyebrows or the ire of many Christians today, that doesn't overturn nor negate the valuable ideas they contributed to the body of Christ. Unfortunately, many evangelicals are quick to discount and even damn their fellow brothers and sisters over alleged doctrinal trespasses. Even if those same brothers and sisters hold to the historical orthodox creeds, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, etc. But such discounting serves no one on the kingdom side of the aisle. And it can be avoided. When diversity within orthodoxy is encountered, grace should be extended. Just as we would want grace extended to us, seeing that none of us sees perfectly. Matthew chapter 7 verse 12. Therefore, we should never judge the whole bag by one or two grains of wheat. The words of Paul of Tarsus contain thunder and lightning on this score. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9. Or in the words of the New King James Version, we know in part. 4. Honoring those with whom you disagree. 
I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. We've all seen it. The belligerent throwdowns where Christians take the gloves off with fellow believers over doctrinal, theological, and political differences. Many of them can't walk away from a fight or lose. Instead, they either pour coals on an already roaring fire, or they bring in the gasoline trucks. For this reason, it's time for us to recover the lost art of agreeing to disagree. The devil gloats when God's children are at one another's throats over their petty disagreements, but forfeiting a relationship over a disagreement effectively dismantles the words of Jesus. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John chapter 13 verse 35. That they may be brought into complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me. John chapter 17 verse 23. John Wesley was the first to put the phrase agree to disagree in print in the 18th century. George Whitefield was his sparring partner, and Wesley attributes the phrase to him. Here's the quote. If you agree with me, well. If not, we can, as Mr. Whitefield used to say, agree to disagree. In light of the doctrinal disagreements between Wesley, an Arminian, and Whitefield, a Calvinist, someone once asked Whitefield if he thought he'd see John Wesley in heaven. Here is Whitefield's reply. I fear not, for he will be so near the eternal throne, and we at such a distance, we shall hardly get sight of him. This statement reveals the spiritual stature of George Whitefield. To recognize the place of another servant of God in the kingdom, despite doctrinal disagreements, is an evidence of a person who walks with God. To speak well of another servant of God, honoring them in public even, is a mark of spiritual greatness and Christ-like humility. This is especially true when we have significant disagreements with their theology or their politics. To have the insight to see when God's hand is on a person and using them, despite the doctrinal differences we may have with them, is a sign of someone who knows the Lord well. Whitefield's remark about Wesley is rare to see in our day, where bickering, casting aspersions, and dismissing in particular are the order of the day when it comes to theological disagreements among Christian leaders. Let's take our cue from Wesley and Whitefield when encountering a disagreement with a fellow believer. Learn the art of agreeing to disagree. When it comes to countless doctrinal, theological, and political disagreements, most of those hills aren't worth dying on. Indeed, there are times when we should dig in our heels on a point of orthodoxy, but not to the point of violence, either physical or verbal. We'll explore this matter later in the book. May Whitefield's tribe increase. 5. It's not a blood sport. I choose to look at people through God, using God as my glasses, colored with His love for them. Frank Laubach A careful read of church history will chill your blood. From the late 4th century until the 17th century, Christians slaughtered their fellow brethren over doctrinal differences. Sure, there were doctrinal wars undertaken in print where one writer would quarrel at pen's point with another author. However, the pamphlet wars eventually evolved into something far worse. Christian leaders began unsheathing their swords and the bloodletting began. 
Tragically, the blood has been flowing ever since, even today in the West, where there is a freedom of religion. I'm speaking metaphorically. During the past four decades, I've been given a front-row seat to watch a number of church splits. In every case, it began with someone getting their feelings hurt and going on the warpath. I remember one case in particular. A man came into our fellowship with a pet doctrine that he wanted everyone else to embrace. We'll call him Tom. Tom was so persistent he could wear down a granite mountain. He ran our blood hot. Despite his efforts, we didn't accept Tom's teaching. He got his feelings hurt, and the Ginsu knife made its appearance. Someone decided to throw a match into the situation by correcting Tom. The result, we could all smell flesh burning. Others tried to correct Tom, too, but they were left sucking air. Tom became so angry he had smoke blowing out of both ears. I'm aging by the moment as I think about it. Tom exploded into criticism and began vilifying the members of the church, accusing them of despicable and heinous things, none of which were true. He was on full meltdown, spewing venom wherever he could. Beyond his blistering denunciations, his sentiment was, I wash my hands of those people. The words of judo champion Dimitru D. Komen come to mind. When a toxic person can no longer control you, they will try to control how others see you. Regrettably, I've watched this same drama play out in different settings. Different actors, but the same scenes, packed with the same slurs. The lesson is a chilling one. If you're going to meet in close quarters with other Christians, put your asbestos suit on. Someone is going to unleash toxins. And it will be over either a personality conflict or a doctrinal difference. Often these two are joined at the hip. More ironic, they will use the name of God and protecting others as a justification to malign their sisters and brothers in Christ. Historically, those who incinerated heretics by fire or tortured them have always used God's name and the protection of the sheep as their defense. The blood that flowed at the hands of Christians over theological disagreements in the 16th century was up to the horse's bit. The tragic endings of John Huss, William Tyndale, Felix Mons, Balthasar Hoopmeyer, and countless Anabaptists will curdle your blood. But we've come a long way today. We've come two millimeters. Christians who have thin skin may not use the sword to impale those with whom they disagree. They'll use the keyboard and the Internet instead. But the effect is the same. Carnage. Throughout this book, I'm going to declare holy war on this entire attitude. Treating our fellow brethren with the love of Jesus Christ is written in the very bloodstream of God, and you can find it all over the New Testament. To put it another way, theology doesn't have to be a blood sport. It can be a civil and intellectually honest conversation. And it should be. Unfortunately, much of the problem today is that Christians use different conversational styles when they discuss theology. So the disagreement ends up being rooted in semantics rather than in substance. This isn't always the case, of course, but it happens more than you'd expect. Yet it should not be so among God's people. 6. The Shocking Beliefs of C.S. Lewis 
Hey guys, this is a postscript just before you head out and we part ways. I have created a bundle of free resources. This would include my other podcasts, the YouTube channel, several free ebooks, free seminars, and other free resources. And you can find all of that at frankviola.com. And if you go to frankviola.com, you will see in the top menu a link that says free stuff. You just click on that and you will be taken to the free resources page. Also, a number of you have asked if you could donate to help defray the costs of the podcasts and also to express appreciation for the value that you've been receiving. You're under no obligation to donate. I don't ask for donations, but should you have it on your heart to do so, you can go to frankviola.us. That's frankviola.us. And that will take you to a donate page. There's three different options you can use to donate, all of them simple. Thank you very much, and God bless.